The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. As always, we've got a pile of questions on tap and uh, Jim's going to bring those to us momentarily. I've been assured once again, Social Security questions will start the show. Then we'll dive into whatever thing, uh, whatever questions tickles Jim's fancy. We're recording this really close to his birthday, so he gets to pick whatever he wants to cover today in the Q&A show as his birthday present, and uh, I'm sure he's really going to enjoy that. That's kind of a cheap-ass birthday if, gift, let uh, me just tell you right now. Oh, it's just the, you know, it's just the beginning of the, the potpourri of, of gifts about to flow your way. You're also going to be able to determine completely on your own what topic we cover in the ED show. Chris, I already do both of these. You, you're re-gifting that, that this is a re-gift. There better be, there better be a chocolate cake with white frosting come Monday. That's all I can say. <laughs> but there better be. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I've dropped enough hints. Oh, those aren't hints. Those are basically demands. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is chocolate cake day. I, I live I all it. year for this ever since coming embarking up, three many, many years ago. Today. Right. Yep. Ever since embarking on eating healthy now, many, many years ago. Because you want kind of a, we'll call it an entry level style cake. Would you like us to buy it early and leave it out so that it gets a little bit stale by the time Monday no, rolls no, around? No, 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 no. I'd like it. it although if, I will admit, all jokes aside, there's a point where the frosting can get just right, not too fresh, not too stale, but I don't trust you can get it there. So I, I, I'm going to have to go with the fresh okay. because if you get it wrong and it passes, it's kind of yeah. like milk when mm. you're like, hmm, I think this is going bad. And then the next day, mm, yeah, I think I can still get away with it. But there comes a point in time mm. you're like, nope, okay, too far gone. Yeah. Uh, and then you got to throw the milk away. I don't want to risk on my chocolate cake day that happening. Throw it away. Yeah. Okay. I get and it. I got to wait a whole other year to do this again. Yeah. That would be a disappointment. So, 
It would be a disappointment. But for those who don't know, actually, by time everyone yeah. listens to this, isn't You're well this well like, past 60 years old? I was going to say, right, I'm, I'm well past 60 by the time you listen to this because Chris is going on an extended vacation and he is the only one in the office who knows how to record and knows how to edit and knows how to run all the things he has. So uh, pretty much we're screwed, folks, if, if Chris is not here. So we are. Um, pre-recording quite a few shows. So I have no idea. I know today is uh, July 21st. My birthday's in a few more days. That's what we're talking about. But by the time you listen, it's already August, right? With these? Yes. This show should be released to the public on the 2nd of August. Okay. Uh, So as we always have been saying lately, if anything major has happened, especially between the 21st of July and August or any time of oh, when you're Oh, I take it back. No, this is a Q&A show. This is going to release on the 5th of August. Okay. So if anything major happens <laughs> yeah, after the 21st of August and before you listen to this podcast and you're wondering why the heck didn't Jim and Chris talk about this, uh, now you know why. Uh, we didn't talk about it because it is uh, being pre-recorded well in advance. Okay. Um, let's get into our social security questions as we will. And then a couple of annuity questions. We have, we have more annuity questions now, Chris, and social security questions. Mm. So we may have to start turning this and doing one social security question and two annuity questions until we can catch up. But, uh, this past June generated quite a few annuity questions. Mm-hmm. Okay. First social security question. We're going to do two social security questions. And let's look at, oop, I'm in the wrong folder here. You can see I don't print these. All right. Anyways, here is her question. I have a web question for quiz, for Chris, not A web quiz. question for quiz? <laughs> a web question for quiz. I have a web question for Chris. Web being windfall elimination provision. I'll let Chris explain what all that is with a non-covered pension. She continues, I have a very small foreign lump sum pension. So I'm guessing, Chris, foreign is from working in another country, and she took it as a lump sum. At least that's what Mm -hmm. I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. I followed the instructions in the POMS manual. POMS being, I can't even remember. What is it, Chris? That's the Program Operations Manual System. POMS, which is where Social Security publishes for their mainly their internal use, all the very specific rules and details about how to process claims and and who's eligible for what and all this kind of stuff. So, it's the Bible of Social Security. Chris yeah. sleeps with it under his pillow, so through osmosis, all that knowledge gets into his head. Okay, so this person actually went to the Palms Manual. So remember, folks, she has a lump sum pension from working in a foreign country, but she never paid into Social Security during that time. So she's going to be subject to WEP. It's a non-covered pension. So she continues, I calculated it equals $160 per month. You want me to pause there? Do you need to add any clarity anywhere, Chris? I think it's a good time to clarify how that works. So... Uh, the WEP uh, d- does have a does consider the size of your non-covered pension in determining how much of the offset applies to you. But some people, like this person, has a lump sum pension, 
And the measurement, the size of the pension is actually done on looking at the monthly benefit compared to your Social Security benefit. And so for those with a lump sum pension, they have to convert it to an equivalent monthly benefit amount in order to use it properly in the WEP calculation. So there's a table in the POMS manual that this person clearly ran across, and they plugged in the lump sum amount and used the factor in the table to determine how much uh, equivalent the monthly payment would be if it was actually more of a defined benefit style uh, pension rather than this lump sum amount that she has. So that's why that's there. And, and it's just, I don't have the lump sum, so I can't do the calculation to verify it or anything, but she sounds like she went to the right place and got the equivalent $160 per month. Okay. So she continues, my primary insurance amount is $1,000 and I'm at my full retirement age and my benefits starting in August was recent was recently calculated by Social Security. I received their notice, which stated my benefit would be four hundred and fifty-two dollars and thirty cents before any deductions. Am I right in thinking the WEP reduction should have only been half my pension? That is eighty dollars. Or have I got this all wrong? I think, and I'm not an expert, Chris, I think it's going to come down to the imputed income they're projecting from this lump sum pension, but she claims she followed it to the T. Yeah, I think there is a glitch somewhere because due to the WEP rules, essentially, if you're affected by WEP, at first, it's just a trigger. You're either WEP or not WEP. Uh, WEP is you had a non-covered pension and you had fewer than 20 years of substantial service in the social or substantial earnings I'm sorry uh in the social security system once you have more than 20 then the effects of WEP get reduced until you reach the point of having 30 years of substantial earnings in Social Security. And that substantial earnings definition you can find in the WEP brochure published by uh, Social Security if you want to look it up. But if you get 30, then they don't even care if you have a non-covered pension. They aren't going to apply WEP at all if you're in that circumstance. So some people who will just work a few years in a non-covered pension aren't affected. But then there's people like this who might not have the 20 or 30 years of, of substantial earnings in Social Security, but the pension is tiny and the normal WEP offset is very large. The WEP offset effectively is 50% of whatever the first bend point in your uh, PIA calculation is for the year that you turned and became eligible for Social Security, which is 62 so uh, in her particular case, that uh, the WEP offset by default is $400, $450, somewhere in there by default. But then they say, you know what? If your pension is small enough, we're going to limit the WEP offset to be no more than half of your, your non-covered pension. And that's where she gets that $80 figure. She's referencing that limiting factor on WEP. It, it, it keeps a little pension like she has from giving you the, the full punch in the mouth of the WEP offset, which in this day and age can be between four and $500 a month. So um, 
I think if her figuring is correct, then yes, something's wrong. Either the the pension is misreported to Social Security, or they're they're making the the conversion inappropriately, or something. My guess is that they have evidence that you have the non-covered pension, but they don't have the numbers. Something that didn't flow over from that non-covered pension to the Social Security system, other than the fact that you have it. And so they're just applying WEP in full force, which would lead you to a benefit similar to what you've got described there. Um, although I think it still is a little bit low, even if they're giving you the full WEP. But I, again, I, she doesn't give me every nitty-gritty detail about everything. So um, that's my guess. But she's, she definitely should reach out and ask them for an explanation, a detailed explanation. And I'm going to guess that they're going to come back and she's going to find out that they don't know really how big that lump sum is that was the lump sum pension she had the uh, entitlement to. And that's the cause of this, that she's being penalized more than she otherwise should be. But I'd love to hear, this is one of those cases where when you uh, appeal it or you ask for an explanation, I, I would love to hear what they say, either admitting it was wrong and, and uh, you know, your new number is closer to, you know, between 900 and $1,000 is what you're going to get if they're limiting the WEP offset to 80 bucks uh, or somewhere in that, that realm. Uh, you also need to be careful reading that table in the palms because it depends on when you, you know, how old you are. Uh, there's different columns and the factors are quite different in the different columns. So that, I guess, I don't think it would be that different though, uh, if, if that was a mistake. So I'm betting there's a problem on the social security end of it and you should ask them for, uh, to look at it again and hopefully they'll come back with a much higher benefit estimate for you. And to get a hold of you and let you know what the yeah, and then was. follow up. I'd love to hear if you wouldn't mind shooting us an email and let us know what they said. Um, might take a little while to get that, so we probably won't hear back from everybody. And I'll bring it up on the show if if I hear back. Um, probably okay. be a, a month or two before we hear anything. But all righty. So we have another question. So security, we do have a hint. We've had this hint before. Um, it's. Uh, very easy hint. If you don't nail this, then there's something wrong with you. His hint. Wow. That's... He lives in the Cornhusker state. Oh, well, since that state is so close, that one's easy. We hear about that all the time. And their football team are called the Cornhuskers. So it is, in fact, the state of Nebraska. Nebraska, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. My wife and I were both born in 1961. Our full retirement age is 67. Her primary insurance amount, or in other words, folks, what she's entitled to receive at her full retirement age. Her primary insurance amount is $1,900. Mine will be $3,400. She retired at 57 and no longer has any income. She is in poor health and as a result is planning on claiming her social security this fall. This being the fall of 2023, folks. When she turns 62, her monthly income, as you already said, is... Oh, actually, his, her monthly income will be $1,300. Uh, her PIA is 1900 Chris. If she claims early, she'll get 1300 yeah. And that's... So everybody knows if your full retirement age is 67, but you instead claim when you're, imme- you know, when you're first eligible at 62 you'll receive a 30% reduction to your benefits for getting it 
early rather than waiting to 67. Okay. She continue, he continues, I make over 200000 per year and not planning on retiring until I'm 68. I will claim Social Security when I'm 70. Can you explain to me what my options are as a surviving spouse if my wife passes before her full retirement age? And if she passes after her full retirement age, and keep in mind, Chris, they're both the same age with the same full retirement age. Mm -hmm. I am uncertain, but I think because of my high earnings, there is no benefit for me to draw a surviving spouse benefit until I turn 67. I think he's right there, but I'll let you opine. Uh, Also, she has not filed her paperwork yet to claim. Is there any reason you can think of for her not to do so, despite her poor health? Please let us know. We do not need any of the Social Security to pay benefits. The only reason she was thinking of starting her benefits early is because of her poor health. Okay. Um, First, if she dies before... He turns on his Social Security. That does open the door to a strategy that he is implying here, which is he could collect a survivorship benefit on her record as he waits until 70 to turn on his much larger benefit at that time. That is still a viable strategy. So if she predeceases him and she that happens before he claims Social Security, So this is more general for people out there in a situation where you have not claimed yet, but your spouse passes away. Immediately, someone should be looking at your situation and seeing if it makes sense for you to claim a survivor benefit while waiting for your own benefit, which again, since I said you hadn't claimed yet, you were waiting for some reason. Now, depending on your circumstances, it may or may not make sense, but that is a viable option in a case like this. I totally understand why he's going that direction. If she were to pass away before he retired, his level of earnings would completely wipe out any benefit he could get on either his own record or hers. So it wouldn't make any sense for him to claim um, uh, while he was still working. But once he stopped working, 68, which since, um, let's see, both born, they're same age, right? Both born in 61, then um, if she he retires in 68... At 68, I'm sorry, she she will have gotten, you know, at that point, he could claim a survivor benefit if she had predeceased him at that point. Um, If she predeceases him and for some reason he stops working and, you know, he has not yet reached his own full retirement age, he the, the amount he'll get from the survivor benefit will vary a little bit compared to what he would get if he waited to his full retirement age. And there's actually two factors at play here. I don't want to go too much on a tangent where her claiming at 62 potentially limits a survivor benefit to him. And they have a special rule in place that will um, actually raise the benefit for him um, that's available to him so that, you know, the survivor doesn't, receive a lifelong punishment from her choosing to claim as early as 62. It's called the RIBLIM, Retirement Insurance Benefit Limit. They limit the, the, the reduction 
just for a survivorship scenario, but that's a topic unto itself. So I'm not going to go any further than that because it's a very complicated uh, topic. Is that um, the 82 and a half percent or something like that? Yeah. Rule? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so otherwise, you know, she claimed early and is only going to get 70%. They essentially say, we don't want a surviving spouse to be punished more than a reduction down to about 82 and a half percent. And, and, uh, uh, so they'll, you know, do a recalculation that could apply, you know, in, in his case, but then if he claims both for his own full retirement age, then that reduces what he would otherwise get anyway. So there's kind of an, a, a plus and a minus that could happen, but I don't think in his case, because he's talking about work until 68. So there's no way he'd turn it on. The only thing he's going to maybe get is a b- little bump up in the survivor benefit because of this special RIB LIM rule. Um, but then he could claim that benefit and that benefit alone as he's waiting to ultimately turn on his social security at 70. So that is, um, you know, totally a valid strategy. He not, he nailed the one point though, when he said that he had high earnings and there's probably no benefit for him to try to draw anything while he's still working. That's true. Any benefit he would claim his own, hers, whatever spousal survivor, his earnings are so high that the earnings test is going to wipe out any benefit he might otherwise receive. So he's going to want to wait till he retires to claim anything if she's alive, it's not going to help him because he cannot claim just a spousal benefit. That is a rule that has been put in force. He can no longer file a restricted application just for a spousal benefit. So if she's still alive, he's going to be just waiting, collecting nothing till he gets to 70. But if she's passed away, once he retires, once he stops working, he should immediately uh, claim a survivor benefit on her record and collect that smaller benefit for some time. Otherwise he's just leaving money on the table. They're not going to, you know, come and contact him and say, Hey, we heard you retired. You know, you might want to collect this. The burden's on you to reach out, to ask for these benefits. So just always remember that if you're, if you've been waiting to claim, like if you're waiting to 70 and your spouse predeceases you, just remember, you should reach out to somebody to figure out if there's a strategy uh, between your benefit and the survivor benefit to to e- exploit there, you know, take advantage of. It's a benefit you are entitled to. Uh, just remember that if your spouse predeceases you before you have claimed your own Social Security, check and see if there's an advantageous uh, strategy for you. Okay, sounds like a plan, hopefully, for them. And I do want to add a little We, As I was listening to you answering this question, I thought, God, this sounds so callous. I do want to acknowledge there is a human on the other end of this whole oh, discussion. Sure. And it's we may sound callous in the sense that we're only analyzing this from a Social Security and question standpoint, but we do acknowledge that his wife is ill. His wife may, may not be with him much longer. Uh, I admire that they can deal with that and think about this Social Security claiming strategy. Right. Uh, there are other strategies and items that they, I'm sure they're dealing with and, and addressing as well. But I did want to acknowledge that we do know there is a, a human involved here. And, and you uh, wish yeah. we do wish your wife the best and that this never becomes an issue. Right. Okay, just wanted to to kind of clarify that a Absolutely. little. Absolutely. Okay. This next question, which is the new question of the week, baffled me on why it came in. 
And then I realized why it came in this week, literally today, is I don't think our addressing of this question last week has even played yet. So I'm going to do this question as well. You can guess it's on the the IRS's decision to delay RMDs yet again uh, for a very narrow subset of people. And we got a question in on that. So I want to give a little bit of clarity, but also expand upon it a little because she's uh, at least wording it with the assumption that she's allowed to do something with the missed RMD, as in get it back into the account, and you just can't. So Hmm. let me add a little background. When Secure 1 passed, we're already at Secure 2, but when Secure 1 passed in January of 2000, and the quote unquote 10 year rule became the rule of the land no, it was and the stretch. January of 2020. What did I say? 2000? 2000, 2000, oh, yeah. yeah. 20, 2020. A little too far back there. A little too far back. And uh, the stretch IRA went the way of the dinosaur for most people. There are five subsets of uh, beneficiaries that could qualify to still stretch under the old rules. But for most people, The stretch IRA went the way the dinosaur was replaced by the 10-year rule. Everybody thought the 10-year rule would follow the five-year rule, which says no required distributions on an inherited IRA at all during the five years. You just have to close the IRA in year five. We thought the 10-year rule would go like that. And, oh, by October of 2022, I believe it was, because I remember I was in mm-hmm. uh, Ohio uh, visiting and looking around, because long-time listeners know I'm thinking of relocating to Kentucky or Ohio when I retire. Uh, I remember all this coming out and the hubbub revolving around the IRS's interpretation of a provision called ALAR, at least as rapidly. And the IRS said, hey, under ALAR, we want to make sure that if RMDs had started for the person who died, at least as rapidly dictates, they must continue even during the first nine years of the 10-year rule. So they created this little carve-out. And said, if someone dies before their required beginning date, or essentially before RMDs began, the 10-year rule follows the five-year rule, and you don't have to take anything out in year one through nine. Just make sure it's closed totally in year 10. If you want to take any money out in year one through nine, it's totally voluntary. But if somebody dies after their required beginning date or essentially after they were supposed to begin taking required minimum distributions, ALAR will apply at least as rapidly and you will have to start taking required minimum distributions. And then to muddy the waters even more, they said, however, you can use your life expectancy even if it results in smaller distributions during the first nine years than the decedent which made me say, well, that's not at least as rapidly in my book, but who am I to argue? So they came out with this. They caused a lot of confusion. And then they came out and said, and actually, I think they came out in May or June with that original statement. And then they came out in October of 2022 and said, hey, we we caused a lot of confusion here. So we are going to waive any RMDs that this class of beneficiaries is exposed to. It's not 
for everyone, just people who have essentially non-eligible designated beneficiaries, they call them. A human, that's a designated beneficiary who's not eligible to stretch. So it's pretty much everybody. They said, hey, you were supposed to begin taking RMDs in 2021 because remember, this didn't become law until 2020 and the law said the RMDs begin the following year, so 2021. We're going to waive 2021 and 2022's penalty, 50% early withdrawal penalty. 50% that you didn't take missed, the RMD, excuse me. missed RMD yeah. penalty, yeah. So many penalties running through my mind. 50% missed RMD penalty. Now it is now 25% post-secure two. I'm just taking you back way, 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 way back two years ago. This is what they were saying. We are going to waive the 50% missed RMD penalty. So many people assumed, Ed Slot being one of them, and myself included, and I do not put myself at Ed Slot's level, that if the penalty is being waived, they're essentially saying you don't have to take it. Okay. They never said it would apply into 2023. So everybody just assumed beginning in 2023, non-eligible designated beneficiaries or humans who are not eligible to stretch will have to actually take the RMD. One thing to keep in mind, folks, this does not extend the 10-year rule. It does not mean the first three years of the 10-year rule have been wiped out and you still have 10 years. You're, you're in year seven now of the 10-year rule. It's just that they came out in 2023 and said, we are also going to waive the penalty, the now 25% penalty, for a missed RMD for that subset of beneficiaries, non-eligible designated beneficiaries, we will waive the 25% missed RMD penalty. They did go one step further and say, you can rightly assume it's implied you don't have to take the RMD. They actually confirmed that. Okay, so that sets the stage for confusion, especially as this listener is going to write. She already took some of the RMD. So here's what she wrote. My husband inherited an IRA from his mom in 2022. So remember, folks, if you inherit an IRA, you are a non-eligible designated beneficiary or a human who's not eligible to stretch. And the adult child of a parent is not eligible to stretch. And you inherit it in 2022. Your first RMD has to come out in 2023. Now, I'm assuming the mother also was past her full retirement age and taking RMDs. So one other thing that I'm going to assume, the year of death RMD for 2022 listener, if your husband inherited the mom's RMD in 2022, if, if the husband inherited the mom's IRA in 2022, if your husband's mom did not take her required minimum distribution in 2022, that RMD must have been taken by your husband in 2022. It is taken by the beneficiary and payable to the beneficiary and taxable to 
the beneficiary. That year of death RMD for his mother has not been waived ever. So I do want to make that clear. So if he inherited this in 2022, he if the mom did not fully take her RMDs, your husband must have. If he didn't, he does need to do that and do it soon and file form. Oh, God, the mayor couple form, Chris, uh, 5329? Yeah, I th- yeah. I'm guessing total. I think it's 5329. I think, that's, I think it's 5329. Okay, Google that real quick, but I'm pretty sure it is. Okay, so you would use Form 5329 to fix that. We're not talking about that. That's just a little rabbit hole I went down. Okay, she continues. My husband inherited an IRA from his mom who died in 2022. Based on IRS guidance, we assumed we would need to empty the IRA by the end of the 10th year after her death. And we needed to take an RMD each year based on my husband's single life table. So again, I assume the mom passed after her required beginning date. And yes, listener, you are correct assuming that based on everything the IRS shared. But last Friday, now again, folks, by the time you hear this, uh, we've recorded this weeks in advance. Last Friday, uh, today is the 21st, so last Friday would have been what, the 16th? No, no, not even the 16th. No, it was the 14th. 14th. I was close. Mm -hmm. So on Friday, the 14th of July, the IRS came out and again said, we're going to give one more year, 2023, the same exemption. No penalty for missed RMD if you're an eligible, non-eligible designated beneficiary. And they also went one step further this time and said that pretty much means you don't have to take it. So she continues. Last Friday evening, the IRS announced for beneficiaries of IRAs for people who died in 2022, the penalty for not taking the RMD in 2023 would be waived. But we took part of the 2023 RMD already. It's my fault for not assuming the IRS would adjust the rules mid-year. I wouldn't say it's your fault, listener. It's no one's fault. The IRS is just being idiotic here. Finalize the damn rule and be done with it. This law was passed three years ago. I still can't make heads or tails out of what they're going to decide. If they're adamant on this, just finalize the rule. So it's not wrong of you to assume this because they came out last year and specifically exempted it just for 21 and 22. They didn't extend it into 23. So don't don't blame yourselves. Do I have the facts straight that we don't need to take the RMD? Yes, listener, you have your facts straight. That doesn't give your husband an extra year. The 10-year rule still applies. He has to close this by the end of 2032. That does not get extended. Any suggestions what we can do with the distribution that we already took? Yes. Now, this is very important. It's complicated, so follow closely. Spend it. Right. Because there's nothing else you can do with it. Right. Well, you could store it in a bank account or, a, you know, a brokerage account. You can, it can be yeah, out. I like any- spend it. Spend yeah. it. It's a gift from his mm-hmm. deceased mom. Go out to dinner. I don't know how big the RMD is. Go out to dinner. 
go out to dinner at a really fancy $100 plate restaurant if you had to, or go on a little trip or buy something. It's a gift from his deceased mom. Think of his mom while you're enjoying the gift. You cannot roll over that RMD that was taken. Now, maybe they're going to come out and allow you to, but that would surprise the heck out of me. That would really surprise me. Because the law specifically states non-spouse beneficiaries cannot roll over any distribution from the IRA. What you mean? means once it's out, it's out. Yeah, and I I said non-spouse, correct? Yes. Yeah, because a spouse could... Right. But your father, your father, your mother, you're not your mother. Who is he? The husband. The husband. There he is. The, the husband uh, was not married to his mother. That that'd be totally like illegal, I think, and and just gross. Mm-hmm. But he was not married. It was a non-spouse beneficiary. He cannot roll it over. So there's nothing you can do with it. And then she continues. She says this isn't that big an amount, so maybe it isn't worth the battle with our broker. Well, I don't know you're not why win she's, the battle. Yeah, you're not going to win the battle. And I don't know what you mean by that. If 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 the broker recommended you take the RMD, I'm going to support him or her because I would have made the, and have mm-hmm. been making the same recommendation. If you need it, take it. If you don't wait till the end of the year, maybe they will change the rule. But you can't blame anyone for the IRS's indecisiveness here. And this is just what makes our industry so frustrating at times. The the laws, the rules, the regulations change constantly. It's not the broker's fault. It's not your fault for not assuming, as you said, that they would change the rules. It's just the IRS being a bureaucratic boondoggle, which is they're doing what bureaucracies do. That's what bureaucracies do. If they ran efficiently and made common sense, they wouldn't be a bureaucracy. They'd be a private entity. It just doesn't work that way. Okay. Anyways, I just wanted to clear this up because mm-hmm. I'm sure there's still going to be other yeah. people with that. So I that's good that we, we repeat that. that. And I just want to um, wrap this one up just by r- reminding people you said it at the beginning, but then you didn't repeat it every time that you talked about who this applied to. So I just want to make everybody clear that this only applies to non eligible designated beneficiaries, humans who have inherited an IRA not from a spouse, that don't qualify for stretch under the old rules, and the decedent passed after their own required beginning date. That second part is also having to be in there. So it doesn't apply to all non-eligible designated beneficiaries. If if the decedent passed before their required beginning date, you don't have, didn't have to worry about these fluctuating rules at all because you have 10 years to take it out. It's those of you who inherited oftentimes like this from a parent who was taking RMDs. That's who this applies to. And they've granted this relief in a very chaotic manner for the first potentially three years for people as these people passed away starting in 2020 when this rule went into effect, but they never clarified it for a couple of years and caused all this confusion. And now they're throwing this extra. I think they're trying to be nice, but they're, confusing people even more. Um, but just wanted to make sure that everyone was clear on who it applies to. Okay, perfect. All righty, next question. And um, huh. well, his uh, hint is his own made up word for the state he lives in. Uh, 
I, I, I mean, I'll read his little hint to <clears throat> you, Chris, and to all our listeners in general. And I'll let you guys decide if you can guess it. Does that sound fair? Sure. Okay. He lives in the state. Oh, gosh, I clicked the wrong email. See, I, I so prefer when I did this with paper. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Jim and Chris. I love the show. Keep up the good work. Here is my hint. I live in the state known as the Cyclone State, or at least that is what our nickname should be to replace our official state moniker. And he does give what the official state moniker is, which I think is his actual hint. Mm -hmm. But what would you consider to be the Cyclone State? And then I'll give you the official moniker and you'll guess it. Well, I think it's probably a battle between Texas and Oklahoma as far as the quantity of twisters. Could be Kansas as well to get a plenty there. You're going to pick one or you're just going to? Let's go Oklahoma. No. He lives in the Hawkeye State. Well, then he should have just talked about the Cyclones, which is, isn't that the football team in Iowa? No, I, I have no idea. Cyclones? Iowa? I thought so. I thought the Iowa Hawkeyes. No, but isn't it, isn't Iowa State maybe the Cyclones something? Oh, I don't know. I interpreted Cyclone State because he capitalized the word Cyclone and State. Uh, Cyclone State capitalized the C and yeah, the S. Iowa State Cyclones, I, so they already have a football team named the Cyclones. Oh, well, see, I didn't know that was his damn hint. I thought I he was talking was. about I think tornadoes. He was talking about, I think he is talking about tornadoes. But I'm not sure. I, does Iowa really get more than Kansas and Oklahoma No, and Texas? I, I, well, I don't know. I mean, it's flat and full of corn, so that means it's a magnet. I know they get tornado. a lot. They do get a lot, but. Yeah. I mean, if you want to attract a tornado to your house, just plant a boatload of corn around it. It's, it's, I mean, it seems these tornadoes, it seems to work that way. Okay. Anyways, that was his hint, folks. His question. This is an annuity question. Mm -hmm. Trying to catch up on annuity questions. While listening to your annuity show on, excuse me, while listening to your June show on annuities, it was referenced that annuities are considered retirement accounts and follow the LIFO rule. That's last in, first out, folks. LIFO. And what it simply means is the government considers the last money put inside your annuity to be the um, first dollars removed. The first dollars put into your annuity is the money you put in. Now, he's asking a question he doesn't specify, so I will. This has nothing to do with an annuity inside an IRA. And soon there will be annuities offered inside 401ks because they changed the rules on those. So in the future, we may say this has nothing to do with annuities inside IRAs or 401ks. The uh, tax distributions of those annuities will follow IRA rules. But when you have a non-IRA annuity, LIFO applies. The first dollars in is your contribution. Because it's not inside an IRA, it's after-tax dollars. It's the only dollars you can contribute to an annuity outside of an IRA are after-tax dollars. But that's going to be the um, first dollars in. Under LIFO, it says the 
Last in, first out, meaning the first dollars out is the last money in, and the last money into your annuity was the earnings. Okay, so that's what he's getting at there. So he continues, folks, while listening to your show, blah, 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 blah. Um, however, when bringing LIFO up, deferred income annuities were frequently referenced in this context. I have a three-year MIGA. I'm going to stop there. Say it again, as I'll say it all the time. A deferred income annuity, as he used, and he used the acronym DIA. A deferred income annuity is an annuitized annuity. There is no longer any account balance. You have forfeited a lump sum of money for a lifetime stream of income payments that will begin 13 or more months into the future. That's why they call the deferred income annuity. If the payments began 13 or less months, it is considered an immediate annuity. Most deferred income annuities begin payments 5, 10, 20, 30 years into the future. He then said Chrissy has a MIGA. He doesn't have then a deferred income annuity. He has a deferred annuity. Don't confuse the two folks. Don't work with some insurance agent someday and say, hey, yeah, I'll buy a deferred income annuity from you, thinking you're going to have access to your money. If it's a true deferred income annuity, there is no access. It's annuitized as soon as you buy it. The much, much, much more common type of deferred annuity is just a deferred annuity. Does that make sense, Chris? Do you want to add anything on that? No, I think that's key and that makes sense. And it's kind of right in the name. I don't think people necessarily uh, equate that income piece to annuitized and they should. Um, so I think it's good that we keep pointing this out. But I think that was clear. Right. Mm-hmm. You'll often hear Chris and I say Diaz and Spears. Oh, my. Uh, Culex, Diaz, Spears and Culex. Oh, my. These are all uh, annuitized annuities that will pay only income. There's no longer access to the dollars. Whereas a deferred annuity, like a variable annuity for the most part, um, is deferring the future income payments, but you have full access outside of any penalty periods to your account balance. And that's what a MIGA is, multi-year guaranteed annuity. So he said, I have three, I have a rather, I have a three-year MIGA from a very large and very stable insurance company. I am earmarking this solely for funding my delay period shortage or potentially Roth conversions. I think what he means there, folks, is he's holding this money to cover expenses after he retires, but before he turns on Social Security. That's what Chris and I affectionately call the delay period because you're delaying your secure income. Or he's thinking, maybe I'll use some of this money later to fund Roth conversions. Where am I going to get the money to pay the taxes? Oh, I'll get it from this annuity. So far, so good, Chris? Yeah, I think we're following so far. So far, perfect, as long as everybody's following. My MIGA also does not automatically renew into a three-year MIGA. 
Rather, it becomes an annual MIGA earning a monthly market interest rate. I'm going to pause there because I'll share a story shortly of a case that we're directly working with, with a client who had a five-year MIGA. I'm not going to get deep into this story because it hasn't finished out yet. Uh, and that five-year MIGA gave a 30-day window, which most MIGAs operate this way, the boy I'm about to describe. You will get a 30-day window to inform the insurance company on what you want to do. You're going to renew it, you're going to close it, or you're going to transfer it to another uh, annuity somewhere. And that 30-day window is when this task is supposed to at least be indicated to the insurance company that you're going to do it. But as I'll share later, mistakes can get made, mostly by the insurance company, uh, that can prolong this greatly, as I'll share later. However, a small number of MIGAs have a unique feature. They become an annual renewable annuity that pay a monthly compounded rate of interest, and you can close them at any time. They won't automatically renew into another three-year or four-year or five-year term because that's how most MIGAs operate. Let's say you bought a three-year MIGA like this gentleman did. After the three years, the insurance company gives you 30 days to tell them what you're going to do with it. And if you don't tell them what you're going to do and you don't send them in a signed form, it will normally automatically renew at whatever current interest rates are for another term that's identical to the previous term you just had. But his becomes, I call them liquid MIGAs at that point. You pay no penalty to get out, no market value adjustment to get out. It's just that the interest rate will be very low. However, some insurance policies now are coming with guaranteed minimum interest rates uh, above 2%. I don't know what this gentleman's is. Most that I see uh, have a guaranteed minimum interest rate of 1%. And most of these liquid MIGAs, if you will, pay about 1%. But irrespective, it gives you much more time to figure out what you're going to do than 30 days. So he continues. So let's say my $200,000 three-year MIGA grows to $225,000 and I elect not to renew and keep it and let it roll month to month. So what he's saying there, folks, is let's just say he put in $200,000, three years later it's worth two twenty-five. dollars He leaves it there. It becomes fully liquid. He doesn't have to do anything. He's got all the time in the world, and it's going to pay him a little bit of interest. What if I now take out $50,000, say the following year, in year four? Will this all be tax-free to me due to LIFO? Or are MIGAs not considered retirement accounts and follow some other pro rata rule for the taxation when I remove my money. Not quite sure where he got confused on things, but listener. Yeah, he stated LIFO, it opposite. Yeah, yeah, exactly. LIFO, last in, first out, is the exact reason why, in your example, you put 200000 in, it grew to two twenty-five. 
You then took out 50,000, whether it's a year later or five years later or five days later, doesn't matter. You have 225,000 in it, 25,000 is growth or interest. LIFO says last in, first out. So that $25,000 of interest is sent out. You took 50000 so then 25000 of your basis will be sent out. That's how you're going to get 50000 But in your example, half is taxable as income, half is tax-free as a return of basis. Yep. Anyways, good question. I just wanted mm-hmm. to clarify that for everyone. Do you need to clarify it anymore? Did I misspeak, misspoke, no, misspeak something wrong? I think that was pretty clean. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Well, there was one, good. now that you're bringing up and asking for it, in the previous question, instead of saying past their required beginning date, you said past their full retirement age. But I didn't, inter- I'm, I'm pretty sure people followed. I, I am only mentioning this to prove to people I do listen to each and every <laughs> word that Jim says about 88% of the time. 88% of the time, so the other 12% of the time you're... Well, sometimes I'm looking up, like the you know the, the knockout roses and stuff like that. I can have these little distractions during the show. Oh, so give us the story. Is Does well, Texas have a rose called the knockout rose? I don't, maybe they're popular in Texas, but it was invent, invented by a guy in Wisconsin. So I, they might be taking credit for something that isn't really theirs, honestly. So the only knockout rose I found, and, and I think there's variations on it, but the one called knockout... Uh, was was invented, cultivated for the first time by a gentleman in Wisconsin. But then it's all over the place because it's quite popular, I believe. So maybe it's super popular in Texas, but that was all I could find out. I didn't dig super deep, but that's what I found out. Okay. Um, this next question is for you, and okay. I think you can answer this in 10 words or less, oh, but you may want to get a little deeper if you want. Okay. I say it's for you because it's definitely it's it's a question you can answer because you you do a lot of the programming on on uh, a software and what you consider to be secure income. Mm-hmm. Okay. He says, "Dear Jim, he totally threw you under the bus. He didn't even give you, but I'm going to let you answer it." Uh, oh wait, he gives a hint. Oh, that's why he doesn't acknowledge you because the hint's for you. Um, well, it's a very short ass hint. I'll give you that much. All right. Here's a shout out. I live in the Beaver State. Oh, you should get this. Yeah, that's Oregon. Oregon, yeah, mm-hmm. Oregon. I guess there was a lot of beavers up there at one time, hence the name, the Beaver State. Yeah, I think still think there's a few, but not like you know they were everywhere before, before the Great Extermination. <laughs> the great <laughs> yes, until uh, when everybody in France was begging for. Beaver skin beaver hats, hats, beaver hats, beaver and they just—they yeah. just came out here and just mowed them down and sent their skins back, and it was uh, decimating. But it was decimating. Okay, I thoroughly enjoy listening to your podcast. Thank you for what you do. My mom is actually from Boston, and one of my best friends lives in Fort Collins, and I grew up in Montrose. So oh. I think he's trying to relate that. Hey, yeah. he's got a lot in common with us. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not a long-time listener, but I have not come across any discussion of how to handle survivor benefits pertaining to a pension. Mm-hmm. I'm a federal employee with 30, oh, excuse me, I'm a 38-year-old federal employee. Mm-hmm. So he's young. Yep. Under our FERS system, I hope to receive a pension when I retire. Mm-hmm. 
However, if I die after I retire, my wife will only be eligible to receive half my pension, mm -hmm. generally, he said. Right. Should we therefore assume only half of my FERS pension is quote-unquote secure, which is used to cover my wife's minimum dignity floor? This way we can make sure she is covered. Or would it make more sense to assume the full amount of the pension and put more into a buffer to make up for it? My wife will most likely never receive a pension and will likely make far less money than me throughout our lifetimes. I'm sure there are strategies to handle the death of a spouse as it relates to Social Security and secure income. I appreciate your thoughts on this topic. The thing that resonates with me the most is the, of your approach is the fun number. I'm, also I'm already very worried I will be incapable of spending money during my retirement. Listener, if you're 38 and you're already worried that by the time you get into your 60s or 70s, you won't be able to spend money, you've got plenty of time to help overcome that fear. Mm -hmm. Um, therapy but you helps. do yeah, <laughs> therapy. Yes. He does highlight something that we regularly point out, folks. Many of you will not spend because you're loathe to. And that's too bad. We just answered a question today of a listener who has a 62 year old wife who doesn't have a long life expectancy. She feels she's in poor health. Money is saved and meant to be spent. We don't know when our day will end. That's the concept of the fun number, to make you feel comfortable, to help you figure out how to determine it, help you back it out, the concept of the see-through portfolio, all these things that we talk about here in our practice. But my purpose for creating this was to overcome what this 38-year-old already recognizes. He's not going to be able to spend money in retirement. He's going to be freaking out. He doesn't say why. They freak out for one or two reasons. You just love growing wealth. You hate to see it diminish. Or you're too nervous to spend the wealth because you don't know if you're going to need it. And spending it on total discretionary fun things that others may seem frivolous or to you might even seem frivolous worries you because you fear the old you is going to need it. That's the concept of the fun number. He continues, he says, for me, going from saving and saving and saving and saving, and I'll stop with all the savings, to suddenly spending is anxiety-provoking. He's only 38 and he's picking up on that. I think that's phenomenal. Knowing my minimum dignity floor, maybe some future inheritances and aging and a buffer will make it far less anxious for me to spend money on fun. I like this, Chris, a young listener understanding what might be coming. But how would you answer his question? How should he and his wife, as they're trying to do these very, very early calculations, count his pension? Yeah, I think it's it's not so much considering it secure income or not secure income, but rather looking at the secure income to minimum dignity floor relationship 
in three different scenarios. We always look at it in three different scenarios. We look at it as the couple where you're receiving your full pension and your social security, any social security and pension that your wife might have your combined minimum dignity floor. We look at it and see how things go. And if you're going to be a lifelong federal government employee, uh, with a you know social security and a first pension, my guess is your minimum dignity floor as a couple will likely be um, close to covered uh, once you turn it all on. You might have a delay period, you know that whole thing that we talk about. The fact that the pension might drop in half, like is the current maximum you can get from FERS, and it's it's uh, technically fifty five percent of what you are collecting as a couple because. They give you half of your single life pension. Uh, so if you're choosing that 50% survivorship option, they reduce your benefit while you're collecting when you're both alive by 10%. So the math works out that essentially it behaves like a joint in 55% pension. Um, there's going to be a cut there. Also, her Social Security, if she's the lower benefit recipient, would go away. But your full Social Security would be available to her as well. But the question always becomes, is that reduction of secure income put you in jeopardy of covering the minimum dignity floor for just her? And then we look at it for just you. Now, you, because you'll have the full um, you know, or close to full first pension and Social Security, your survivorship scenario where you're the single survivor is likely going to be in good shape for minimum dignity floor uh, standpoint. Hers, it's worth looking at, and that can then be remedied if there's stress in that scenario with something like you're talking about, a reserve for that potentiality that could give her the ability to generate more secure income if you were to pass away. Life insurance, you know, because this is a trigger, this is an event that might happen because of your death, and they make a product that's designed to do that, fill in the financial hole left when someone passes away. That would be a consideration. Could be other ways you could look at this. Uh, but it's really all about uh, pensions, in our view, our secure income because they're going to continue your whole life. They're backed by a deep pocketed third party, not, you know, they're still going to come in whether you have assets or not. Um, predictable doesn't go down, only goes up. If it goes up, if it changes at all, those, you know, we've, you've heard us describe that before. So pensions fall into that category. We've also got social security, which you have, I, you didn't say much about your wife's situation, but I suspect if she's working, she would generate a social security benefit as well. And then uh, annu um, income annuities, if you happen to have them, are the main, those three are the main sources of secure income. So the fact that you don't get to keep 100% of it if you pass away doesn't change our definition. It just creates the need for looking at these survivorship scenarios. And I just realized now that I went way more than 10 words. So I apologize. <laughs> you, you do, but I, I think you answered it quite well. All right. Um, I think that probably wraps up the show, or do you want another one? It wraps unless we have a 10-word answer kind of question. No, we don't, so okay. we should wrap it up. Yeah, so that'll wrap it for the day. So I want to thank everybody for listening um, and sending in your questions both. Both of those things are key to make this show run. If you want to send in your own question, just send it in to Jim directly, jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S.com. In the subject line, make sure uh, you indicate that it's a question for the podcast. Um, I know some people out there don't like them, but I, I'm, we're still enjoying the trivia questions about the states, so keep sending those in. Um, not everyone's cup of tea, but 
makes the shows more enjoyable for us. Uh, so we'll be a little selfish and still continue to do it. Um, yeah, I think that's about it, Jim, unless you have anything else to mention. No, I don't. Okay. I will uh, wish everybody a good day, whatever day it is you're listening. And Chris, uh, I know by time uh, you get this, you'll already be on, or not you get this, but by time this plays, you'll already be on your vacation. But I hope your vacation is going well. Uh, me as well. So look forward <laughs> to seeing you soon. So we'll be back with everybody next week with a new show, even though it'll be pre-recorded, but it'll be brand new. So stay tuned for that. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 